0: Okay, Matthew 20:17. Yep, yeah, cool. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, "We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the chiefs of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand to him over to him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life." Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. "'What is it you want?' he asked. "'She said, "'Grant that one of these two sons of mine "'may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom.' "'You don't know what you're asking,' Jesus said to them. "'Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink?' "'We can,' they answered. "'Jesus said to them, "'You will indeed drink from my cup, "'but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant.' These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant about the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rules of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be your first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many.
1: All right, well, um, lovely to see you again. As Luke said, my name's Geoffrey uh, Lynn. I'm one of the pastors, not here actually, but at Trinity City. So if you're here today, it's uh, lovely to have you with us. Um, you should have in front of you a handout that has both the Bible passage and a place to take notes. As Luke said, you'll need a pen. There's some blanks you need to fill in, so grab one from up the back if, if that's helpful for you, if you don't have one. Um, let me just get out of the way. I apologise that it is a double, a whole piece of paper. It's not in half. Let's just say that I had one of those weeks where I only printed the handout at about 9.30 this morning on my printer at home, so that's why it's like that. So don't tell me about environmentalism stuff afterwards. I know I've done the bad thing, so that's okay. Um, The other thing is, over the last few weeks, um, I've been pausing at a couple of points during the sermon to give you a chance to talk with the people around you and to reflect on uh, what we're hearing and how to apply it in our own lives. So it's not just in one ear and out the other. And each week I've been asking you to make sure you're sitting next to someone who you don't share a household with. Now, I realise that that's, you know, maybe I need a different thing today. You can work out who you're going to sit next to today. I'd love it if you would move around a little at this point, and particularly if you don't need to sit so far at the back, to come and sit with old Peter down the front. Um, that would be... His wife said it. His wife called him an old man. Um, but uh, sit next to someone who you're willing to talk with. That would be great. Again, if they're not in your household, that would be useful. Thanks, Corolla. One person. Yeah, that's good. And, um, yeah, as, uh, as you do that... Um, it's worth pointing out that um, Luke and I talked this week and we did think about perhaps changing the sermon series, just mindful of things that have taken place uh, in and around our community obviously. Um, in the end we decided that uh, without being um, naive, uh, we are still a- about the things that have taken place. We're allowed to meet together still. The government said that's okay. So in a sense it's just, it is business as usual. We're making our way through Matthew's account of Jesus' life. This is the next chapter we're up to. It might feel possibly discordant given some of the things that might be on your mind, but I'm going to ask that for the next half an hour or so that instead of thinking about the things out there, we are to think about the things in front of us. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it there is life, uh, that your word never returns to you empty, but always does that for which you send it. So we pray this morning, uh, do your work in our life. Uh, Remind us of what you are like, of what we are like and what our world is like, but above all, show us once again of how you're transforming us to be more like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, my almost impossible task this morning is to persuade you to be excited by the prospect of hard service. My almost impossible task this morning is to persuade you to be excited by the prospect of hard service. And In saying that, even in saying that I'm watering Jesus down, because Jesus said in the passage, we just heard, if you want to be great you must be a slave. Uh, which sounds completely unbelievable, given the utter repulsiveness of slavery throughout the centuries. But this morning I have to try. Because this is one of the most foundational descriptions of the Christian life, of being a disciple of Christ, of being a Christian. So we really don't want to stuff this up. As in previous weeks, I'm just going to walk through the passage. I'll pause at a couple of points for for some discussion. I'll suggest some application and we'll have a time for questions at the end. Point one, on the way to Jerusalem. Look with me again at the first paragraph that was read for us. Verses 17 through 19. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death, and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in verse 17, we're told he takes the 12 aside. Uh, We're about to be given a glimpse into what's going on behind the scenes, a view into the inner ring, the corridors of power. Sadly, it's not going to be pretty. Jesus says that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, tried and executed. Uh, Although on the third day, he'll be raised to life again. This, of course, is terribly confusing. There is a sinister fate that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem to be mocked, flogged and crucified. But it won't be the end of the matter. And what's more, knowing everything that will take place will not stop Jesus from carrying out his mission. Although the one thing he doesn't say here is why. Why is he going through all of this? Just try and remember that because we're going to come back and see the answer at the end of the passage. Now, it's helpful for us to be reminded that this is not the first time Jesus has predicted his fate when he finally gets to Jerusalem. In fact, he's made this prediction twice before and so it really ought not come as a surprise to us. There's a couple of passages printed there on the left. I'm not going to read them out, but you'll see from Matthew 16 and Matthew 17... These are the previous two occasions in which Jesus has warned about what will happen when he reaches Jerusalem. But what's different this time is how his disciples respond. See, the first time, back in Matthew chapter 16, Peter tried to talk Jesus out of it. Now, that probably wasn't going to end well, trying to tell Jesus that he'd made a mistake and in fact it ends up with Jesus calling Peter Satan, so not a good day for Peter. The second time, in Matthew chapter 17, that's the other passage there, we're told that disciples were filled with grief. I wonder if they'd given up hope at that point. They sensed that they were on a mission that was doomed to disaster. So the third time around that Jesus makes the prediction, we find ourselves wondering how people are going to react, and here's where things get completely unexpected. Point two, a mother's request. Pick it up in verse 20 on the left-hand side. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, Yes, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. I don't know what kind of upbringing you had. I don't know whether your parents were the fair, easy easygoing type Or perhaps they were the kinds of parents who drove you hard because they had big plans for your life, be they sporting or academic or musical or anything at all. I don't know what kind of upbringing you had, but I want you to imagine for a moment that you were the sons of Zebedee and how you'd be feeling at this exact moment that your mum comes in front of Jesus to make this kind of request. My guess is that uh, you've probably got one of two possible responses. The first, and this is the most likely, I would think, is that you're cringing at this point, hanging as far back as you possibly can, lest your, I can say this, your Asian tiger mother gets taken out by a lightning bolt for what she says. That's one possibility. On the other hand, actually, maybe, maybe you're the one dragging her along. Come on, Mum, this is our big chance. It's interesting that the sons of Zebedee aren't even named in this passage. We do know their names. Their names are James and John. Matthew has told us that twice already. I wonder why he's chosen to airbrush their names out of the account at this point. Is it to protect their identity? Or is it to remind us just how forgettable they are? Whatever the reason, apparently mum and her two boys kneel before Jesus. We don't see the disciples kneeling before Jesus very often, to be honest. Most of the time they're walking with him, sitting with him, but this time they kneel. I wonder why. Maybe it's a sign of humility. Maybe they're trying to apply Matthew 7, verse 7, which we saw obviously much earlier. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, the door will be opened. Maybe they're just taking up Jesus' invitation. He said, come at any point so here they are now. Or maybe it's a false humility, a kind of sycophantic ingratiation. Maybe they're just bringing insincere platitudes to manipulate Jesus into giving them what they want. Whatever their posture, their mother's request is incredibly audacious. She asked Jesus to bestow premier glory on her sons in the kingdom. At the right and the left, those are the thrones of power on either side of the monarch. It's an incredibly audacious request, although what's most incredible is that Jesus has just said for the third time that he's going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And it's true, he will be raised to life, but there has been no suggestion that he will receive post-mortem glory, although obviously mum is counting on that, isn't she? She's clearly one of those no pain, no gain kind of parents. And never mind the fact that in the previous passage, we've just heard Jesus say the first will be last and the last will be first. Well, Jesus' response, of course, is pretty harsh. Verse 22, first he says, you don't know what you're asking. Never a truer word, truer word said then than that. But he follows it up with, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Now, whatever the cup is, it's probably not a good thing. I mean, that's kind of obvious from the passage, right? Whatever the cup is, it's probably not a good thing. Normally in the Bible, drinking the cup is a metaphor for experiencing God's wrath. But this time, I think it simply means can you do what I'm about to do? Be mocked, flogged, and crucified. To which the two sons reply, with completely straight faces, verse 22, we can. You betcha. No problem, Jesus. She'll be right. And of course, the punchline comes in in verse 23. Jesus agrees that they will drink from my cup, uh, which I think is why it doesn't mean experiencing the fullness of God's wrath, rather do what I do, follow in my footsteps, just as every disciple must be willing to. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Where he goes, we need to be prepared to go as well. To leave everything behind if we're going all in with him. It's interesting, the church history records that 11 of the 12 first disciples were martyred in those early years. And the 12th, of course, John, dies in exile on the island of Patmos. So Jesus agrees, yes, you will drink from my cup, and yet the granting of the places of honour that they crave, the right and the left on either side of his throne, that's not for Jesus to decide. So he can't promise that. It's as if they've made the request of the wrong person. But there's one last twist in the tale, and that comes to point three then, whoever wants to be great and whoever wants to be first. Pick it up in verse 24. Verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials, officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, here's the last twist in the tale. James and John have, quite frankly, just been shot down in flames by Jesus, haven't they? They've just been burned pretty badly, and yet the remaining disciples don't learn from their mistakes. All they can think about is how annoyed they are that they didn't think of making this request first. (laughs) Verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the twelve brothers, with the two brothers, presumably for trying to get the jump on them. Isn't that fascinating? See, even though Jesus hasn't promised the two, James and John, anything especially good, I mean, all he's promised them is that they'll be mocked, flogged, and crucified, still, the remaining ten are so annoyed, the word actually is better translated outraged, that they come to Jesus to complain. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, that's really the fear of missing out for you taken to extreme, isn't it? Oh, Jesus, we're going to miss out on that, on all that as well. Do you realise how blinded we can be by ambition? This is, I've written it there for you on your handout, this is the doctrine of original sin in action. This is the doctrine of original sin in action. The doctrine of original sin says that all of us are born into sin. We have inherited Adam's fallen nature. And this story embodies that truth so powerfully because it says that if you and I had been there on that road on that day, we would have made exactly the same complaint as the ten. The doctrine of original sin says that if you and I had been there in the Garden of Eden, we would have taken the fruit as well. Uh, There is a great hymn, a modern hymn, that we don't sing much these days, probably because we oversang it to death, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The second verse encapsulates this idea so succinctly and memorably. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. But, here's the good news of the gospel His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. This is why, as Christians, we start with the premise that if God were to treat us fairly, if God were to treat us as we deserved, no one would be saved. And the fact that anyone is saved is a testimony to God's grace and mercy. We saw just a glimpse of that last week in the parable of the workers, which, as you will recall, I suggested we renamed the parable of the unexpectedly and unbelievably generous landowner who cannot give it away fast enough. Well, the passage concludes then with Jesus' response in verses 25 to 27. Here he puts it all in perspective. He says that greatness means service. Being first means being a slave. Jesus is really up in the ante at this point. And he gives the example of hard service. The example is that of the Son of Man giving his life as a ransom for many. Do you remember I said at the start that we're not told when Jesus says he's going to die in Jerusalem, why? We're not given the reason for everything that he'll go through, here's the meaning of Jesus' death at last. Jesus will die in Jerusalem. He will die as our substitute in our place. He will be the ransomed that, ransom that is offered to redeem us. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that the disciples need this? This incident proves just how unworthy they are. Matthew 26 will be even more explicit. It will explain why that ransom is required. I printed the passage there on the bottom left. Apologies for the one-point font. Matthew 26, this is Jesus just before he goes to his death. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If today you're sitting here feeling like a failure, which all of us do at times when we're prepared to be honest, the good news of the Gospel is that you need not be overwhelmed if Jesus is the one who makes amends for your sins. I'm going to pause at this point for just a couple of minutes and, as we've been doing each week, give you a chance just to talk with the people around you. I've given you a question there that's going to lead us into the second half of this talk, which is to reflect, therefore, on the nature of service. And you'll see the question printed there. Who is a Christian servant you admire? And why? And what do you think motivates them to serve? There's been a passage that's been about service... We can spend some time reflecting on that exact issue in a moment, but to lead into that, I'd like you, just for a couple of minutes, as I said, who is a Christian servant you admire and why, and what do you think motivates them to service? Just chat with the people around you for a couple of minutes, and then I'll call us back together. Over to you. Okay, thanks, everyone. I'll um, draw us back together at that point. I'd love to hear from you after. So we don't have time now, but if you want to come and share a story with me, please come and tell me. I'd love to hear about uh, Christian brothers and sisters who've been examples for... Uh, for us. Here's where I want to spend the rest of the time. I want to spend the rest of the time talking about what I've called the how-to of hard service. Uh, If service is so important for followers of Jesus, I want to ask, what would help you to persevere as a servant, even a slave, without becoming jaded or bitter? What would help you to be excited about the prospect of hard service, to want to be in this for the long haul, for a whole lifetime? What if you've been serving faithfully for years, but quite frankly, quite, quite frankly, at the moment you're feeling tired and burnt out and thinking of chucking it all in? I want to make a few suggestions again before I get you to talk with each other, and then we'll wrap up with some questions at the end. Here's the big idea. The big idea, um, halfway down the page, is that your motives matter. Your motives matter. When Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, sometimes we wonder, is Jesus proposing a crudely mercenary approach to service? That is, serve so that you'll be recognised and be known as great. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I say that because all of us, I think, can distinguish the difference that motives make. Let me give you an example. Uh, We just prayed a little earlier for one of the members of this church who's about to head off on deployment. All of us, I think, can tell the difference between a soldier who fights for country and for others and a mercenary who fights for personal gain. I think there's more than a hint of that in the way in which Jesus says he gives his life as a ransom for many. That is the primary reason driving what Jesus does is to benefit others, not himself. Motives matter, even more than outcome. And of course the great challenge is that both motive and outcome are so often mixed. Soldiers, for example, are rightly rewarded and honoured for their sacrifice, even if that wasn't their primary motive. I think that's the reason, that's the rightness that lies behind the tomb of the unknown soldier. That it is right that they be recognised even if we do not know their name. So of course the question then becomes how can you tell what your true motives are because they are almost always mixed and they're definitely always impure in some way. a couple of brief suggestions. The first is, if you're trying to assess what your motives are behind a decision, can I encourage you to start by sharing those motives with others and ask them for an unbiased perspective? Now, just warning, that ouch, like that can be really hard. If you're really serious about examining your motives, then my second suggestion is that you pray and ask God to refine them. That's kind of like double ouch. That's a risky prayer to pray because I reckon if you pray that prayer, God will probably answer you and it will inevitably start with some painful truth bombs about the way in which you conduct yourself. So what are some of the questions that you might ask of your motives, in particularly in this area of service? Well, what I'm going to suggest here are a number of reasons as to why you might serve, a number of motives. And these are the blanks for you to fill in. Now somewhat cheekily, I've put check boxes at the end of each of them. <laughs> so that you can go through and you can tick or cross or put a question mark next to it. You don't have to show anyone else this, right? Just, you know, kind of fold the paper in half if you want. Mindful of my earlier suggestion about if you're genuinely serious, You'll ask others who know you well what they think. Here we go. A few suggestions. Serve because you delight to bring glory to your master. Serve because you delight to bring glory to your master. That's an easy thing to say. How would you do that in practice? Look at what Paul tells slaves about how they are to treat their masters in Colossians chapter 3. I printed the verse there for you. Paul says, Slaves, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. What Paul is saying is that when you serve others, you're really serving Jesus. And that's because, of course, our first prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done, your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, the reason why you serve Jesus is because you think he is worthy of all praise. I was thinking this week, Imagine if someone rang you up and invited you to serve as the chief of staff to the US president. It seems to me that you'd accept the job if you believed in him. If you thought that he were the most superb person you had ever met and the best person for the job. I take it that's the reason why people do serve Uh, even the current one, no matter what other people might think of him. Because that's the trick, really, I think, to service, is to realise that when you're serving other Christians, you're not just serving Bob or Jane or Sally or Fred, when, quite frankly, at times, you don't think very much of them, and they probably won't even thank you. Paul urges us to remember who it is that we are serving. If the Prime Minister were to come in today, Scott Morrison were to walk in at the back of the church, and asked you afterwards to vacuum the floor, I imagine you'd probably jump to it. even if no one else notices or recognises or honours you for it, the reason to serve is that you might hear our Master's praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me say something for a moment about do you need to be gifted to serve? Because this is something that I think we often wrestle with and struggle over. It's not written here on your handout, but I thought I'd say something here. Do you need to be gifted before you serve? Well, all things being equal, I think gifts are helpful but not essential. What I mean by that is that I suggest you serve in ways you're better at rather than in ways that you're not. If I give you an example, uh, in my church, uh, Trinity City in the, uh, in, in the CBD, uh, for a number of years we had a, a property manager, a site manager, his name was Andrew. Um, he was the most wonderful handyman. He could fix anything, make anything work that was practical and hands-on. And he and I had a running joke about just how wonderful men like him were compared with useless pastors like myself, who I can assure you I have no idea or actually inclination. Whenever he would change light bulbs, fix leaking toilets, whenever he remodelled my office for my weirdly eccentric needs, he would do so willingly. But what I always remember is that every time he did, he would thank me each week for preaching because he really didn't want to do that. All things being equal, I reckon gifts are helpful but not essential. And yet here's the point. (laughs) Things are not equal. The danger is we can use the phrase, I'm not gifted, as a convenient excuse to get out of the things you'd just simply rather not do. Do you know one of Jesus' last commands to his disciples was to wash one another's feet? I thought about that this week. It occurred to me that to wash someone else's feet, you don't need special gifting or anointing by the Holy Spirit. You just need a bucket and a towel. And actually, if you're really concerned about that, then maybe you might pray for that gift. That would be an interesting test of our motives, wouldn't it? Okay. First suggestion, serve because you delight to bring glory to your master. More quickly, secondly, serve because service was good enough for Jesus. Service was good enough for Jesus. Now, my apologies for what I'm about to say if you're offended by it. I get that service is not sexy. I get that service is not sexy you know, a number of years ago, uh, the New South Wales Police Service was renamed as the New South Wales Police Force. And the reason for that, I went back and read the speech that the minister gave at the time. His argument was, because we want to sound tougher. And of course, the irony is, if anyone has the right to demand others serve him, surely it was the Son of Man. But he didn't came to serve, not to be served. And in his example we see someone who will never ask you to do anything he wasn't prepared to do. He will never ask more of you than what he himself did. He laid down his life not just for his friends, but for his enemies. Romans 5, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If I can remind you of, of, course, the very definition of a disciple, the definition of a disciple is that you long to be like your master. You want to become like the one you follow. Serve because you want to bring uh, you want to bring glory to your master, serve because service was good enough for Jesus, serve because that's what families do. Serve because that's what families do. Now, this idea doesn't come so much from Matthew 20, I want to acknowledge that, but I guess it's a more theological reflection on how church is so often described as a family. I was thinking about families this week, about biological families anyway, and how in a biological family, everyone serves each other in some way. Take as just one very superficial example, think about family celebrations uh, for Christmas, for birthdays, for anniversaries, when everyone gets together. When you do, everyone serves in some way. Everyone brings a dish to share. Whoever gets there first is involved in setting up the table. Those who don't stick around longer at the end to do the dishes and... Everyone cleans up before you leave. You don't just run away. You don't turn up late and expect to leave early after being waited on hand and foot. If that comes as news to you, maybe we ought to have a quiet conversation afterwards. I understand, of course, there are exceptions. Maybe for babies who are too young. Maybe for grandparents who have done their time. Maybe for those who are temporarily unable because of sickness. There are exceptions, but the exceptions just confirm the rule, don't they? In families, everyone serves. How interesting then that the church is so often described as being the household of God. Serve because you delight to bring glory to your master. Serve because service was good enough for Jesus. Serve because that's what families do. Finally then, serve because you choose to be excited by service. Serve because you choose to be excited by service. I realise service is hard, so I want to finish by encouraging you to start with something. Start with something And ask God to change your heart and your convictions and help you be excited by serving others because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. You don't serve because it's fulfilling and rewarding. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. You don't serve because it's self-promoting. Although interestingly, in a family, people usually do notice You serve, you serve until you serve because you start with something and there is a satisfaction in serving if you will choose to look for it. That satisfaction lies in the guarantee of the Master's reward and acclaim. And that's because when you serve Jesus, well, you are participating in something which is guaranteed to succeed. See, Jesus did make it to Jerusalem eventually. He was flogged, mocked and crucified. On the third day, he was raised to life. But that was only the beginning. He ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven in the place that he deserves. And all that remains in Jesus' great mission plan is for his eternal glorification and exaltation. What he has already accomplished, his death and his resurrection, it is the rock-solid guarantee of everything that will still take place. It will come to pass, given the lengths he has already been to. And I reckon that that probably is something worth getting excited about. Well, for a couple of moments then, I'm going to ask you just to turn back to the person next to you and you'll see a couple of discussion questions at the end. What motivates you to serve? And what would help you to change and to grow? What motivates you to serve? And what would help you to change and grow? There's a chance for honesty and then at the end for questions and then I'll pray for us as we conclude. So, to the, with the person next to you for a couple of minutes. Over to you. Okay, thanks everyone. I'll... um. Gather us back together. Thanks for taking the time to be able to talk with each other about some of those things. Let me pause and ask if you have any questions about things I've talked about before I conclude for us in prayer. But um, any questions?